I shared this with you several years ago, but it bears repeating. It sold, it sold over 12 million copies since it was first published in 2010. In fact, the book was on the New York Times bestseller list for over three years. It actually made it to number one for 59 weeks, not consecutive. It would drop out and then go back up 59 weeks, number one, on the nonfiction list, which I find interesting because it perhaps should have been on the fiction list, published by Thomas Nelson, a reputable Christian publisher. It was non the, the number one selling Christian book for over four years. It was so popular that in 2014, it was made into a movie by the same title and made, ready, this is a Christian movie, made $102 million at the box office. First line on Thomas Nelson's website promoting the book said, uh, a beautifully written glimpse into heaven that will encourage those who doubt and thrill those who believe. I'm talking about a book written by Pastor Todd Burpo entitled, Heaven is for Real. It tells the story of Pastor Todd's then three-year-old son, Colton, who was rushed uh, to emergency surgery for a burst appendix. Sometime later, then Colt revealed, or Colton revealed to his father that he had been to heaven and back. That's right. Uh, he apparently revealed things that he could uh, not have known. Uh, for example, his father almost having a meltdown in the room next to him. Um, what his parent, again, what his parents were doing uh, as he went into surgery. The existence of a sister who died in a miscarriage that Colton then says he met in heaven. Others to include a great grandfather who died 30 years before Colton was born, but he was later able to identify him in a picture. Now, Colton described receiving a halo and wings, which should be your first clue that something is amiss. He didn't like the wings because they were too small, he said. He described a rainbow-colored horse that Jesus rode, second clue. He talked about sitting on Jesus' lap, whom he described as having brown hair and matching brown beard and sea-blue eyes, that Jewish Messiah. Third clue. He apparently met the Holy Spirit, whom he describes as kind of blue, not depressed, but in color, kind of blue. Fourth clue. The last line of the book's description on the publisher's site read, heaven is for real, will forever change the way you think of eternity? I hope not offering the chance to see and believe like a child. So much for Jesus' words to Thomas, blessed are those who have not seen yet believed. The book is, was actually written in a popular genre that goes all the way through today and should not be confused with others sharing the same topic or the same title to include The Boy Who Came Back from Heaven by Kevin Malarkey. who later confessed he made up the story. Just a bunch of malarkey, I guess. 90 Minutes in Heaven by Don Piper, not to be confused with John, by Don Piper, but that name caused me to read it. Uh, My Journey to Heaven by Marvin Besteman, Flight to Heaven by Dale Black, To Heaven and Back by Mary Beale, Nine Days in Heaven by Dennis Prince, and let's not forget 23 Minutes in Hell by Will Bill Weiss. That was a hot read. 
Come on, I've been working, I worked on that. <laughs> These books made their respective authors some money, I suppose. I mean, $102 million at the box office was a nice haul. Listen, I am not suggesting that three-year-old Colton or his pastor father are charlatans. I'm simply questioning the validity of the account. And, and by the way, you can also tune in to It's Supernatural with Sid Roth. Many of his guests tell similar stories and share fanciful prophecies, which caused me to think it's a good thing you weren't alive during the Old Testament. What is concerning to me about these kinds of books is that they're being read and recommended by Christians who see them as a source of spiritual truth and encouragement, regardless of the fact that many in some way contradict the Bible. Why do I bring this up today? Several reasons. First of all, as I just said, most if not all of them in some way contradict the Bible and therefore have no, ba no basis in truth, fictionless, not nonfiction. How much error do we have to tolerate before we reject something as fanciful or untrue? Second, to be encouraged by that which is not true is actually to be deceived. Third, these kinds of stories distract believers from the Word of God, which is ultimately and inerrantly true. And fourth, listen carefully, it distracts us from the gospel and the glory of God which, by the way, is central to the Bible's depictions or the Bible's glimpses of heaven. The glory and centrality of God. Consider what Pastor John MacArthur says on this said on this topic. For anyone who truly believes the biblical record, it is impossible to resist the biblical conclusion that these modern testimonies, with their relentless self-focus and the relatively scant attention they pay to the glory of God are simply untrue. They are either figments of the human imagination, dreams, hallucinations, false memories, fantasies, and in the worst case, deliberate lies or malarkey, or else they, they're products of demonic deception. Pastor David Platt, speaking on the subject, said it like this. All the accounts of heaven in Scripture are visions, not journeys taken by dead people. And even visions of heaven are very rare in Scripture. You can count them all on one hand. Four biblical authors had visions about heaven and wrote about what they saw. Isaiah, Ezekiel, Paul, and John. Stop right there. By the way, yes, it is true that Stephen had a vision of heaven and not a near-death experience, but an actual death experience. And he did not come back to write about it. Platt also left out Daniel and a prophet named Micaiah, just proving that pastors are not infallible. All of them were prophetic visions, not near-death experiences. Not one person raised from the dead in the Old Testament or the New Testament writes about what he or she experienced in heaven. Not one, including, he says, Lazarus, who had a lot of time in, in a grave, four days, Platt goes on to quote another author, notably missing from all the biblical accounts are the frivolous features and juvenile attractions that seem to dominate every account of heaven currently on the bestseller list. Now, 
I, I know that as I introduce my sermon with this phenomenon, some of you may be dis- disappointed. Some of you would no doubt say, but I've read one of those books, maybe several of them, and was encouraged in my faith. Uh, here's, my, here's my question. I want, to, I want to be very gentle. Here's my question. If they contain falsehoods which contradict Scripture, as most seemingly do, and, and, and some are even fabrications, in what way have you been encouraged? Especially as we have God's Word to encourage us about the truth and reality of heaven. Again, I, I will ask... If, if we need a book that chronicles a less than accurate story of a three-year-old who went to heaven and, and came back to believe that heaven is for real, what does this communicate about our faith? It's interesting to note, the Apostle Paul was taken to heaven in a vision or not, he doesn't know, 2 Corinthians chapter 12, but was then forbidden to write about it, to keep him humble. But now we are to believe that others are permitted to write, even if their accounts are more, listen, even if their accounts are more consistent with modern notions of heaven than the truth of Holy Scripture. Why do I bring this up today? Because we are in a study of the book of Revelation, and none except perhaps Ezekiel give a more complete and glorious view of heaven. We arrive at this vision of heaven that that John shares in Revelation 4 and 5, and it is an absolutely incredible picture. It actually becomes foundational, we're going to find, for the rest of the book. You see, before we get to anything else, John declares that the creator of all things reigns and should be worshipped. While it might seem that evil is triumphing, certainly in our country, evil is triumphing, he is saying to us, he's saying to people of Elias, God is still on his throne and he is still sovereign. We're going to spend a few weeks on this, I don't know how long, but, but, but why is it here now? Why, why was John given this vision? And further, why was he allowed to share it and the Apostle Paul was not? What is its What is its purpose? You remember when we started this book a few months ago, I gave you this simple outline. We saw the prologue, which was kind of an introduction to the book. There might actually be three introductions. Uh, The first vision, which was Jesus among the seven churches, we saw this glorified picture of Jesus and, and then uh, in the letters to the seven churches, we see this vision of heaven, which begins the second vision which goes into, now some people say that these, th- these next few points are actually indi- individual visions. They might be, I'm just going to kind of lump them all together, the seven seals, seven trumpets, seven signs, and seven bowls, which leads to the third vision, the triumph of God, and then the new heaven and the new earth, which is a fourth vision, and then the epilogue, but actually to be balanced, maybe three epilogues along with three introductions. I know, we'll figure it out. It's important to note that John gives some literary markers throughout this book so that we know that we are, we know where we are. Each major section um, contains something like the following. In chapter 1, verse 10, I was in the Spirit on the Lord's day, and I heard behind me a loud voice like the sound of a trumpet. And then after the 
prologue, uh, this commenced the first um, vision, which extended all the way through chapter 3. We saw that. We just finished that last week. Chapter 4, we begin today. After these things, I looked, and behold, a door standing open in heaven, and the first voice which I heard, like the sound of a trumpet speaking with me, said, come up here. Immediately, I was in the Spirit, which begins the second vision, starting with this vision of heaven and extending all the way through the seals, trumpets, and bowls to the end, I think, of chapter 16. If you want other little mini visions in there, that's fine. Chapter 17, then. One of the seven angels who had the seven bowls came and spoke with me saying, come here and I will show you. Verse three then says, and he carried me away in the spirit, another literary marker, another major section. Then to the fourth vision, chapter 21, then I saw a new heaven and a new earth for the first heaven, first earth passed away, verse 10, and he carried me away in the spirit. Do do you see the markers? And all of that is so you could see that this is an incredible book that John very meticulously put together, and so that you can see that we're getting ready to jump in to the heart of the book today. John gave us his introduction to the book, then we saw his vision of Jesus, followed by Jesus' seven letters to the seven churches, now we get to the second vision Yes, it begins with a tour of heaven. John is given a vision, but I believe that you will find it quite different than the popular books on near-death experiences, NDEs, or even dying experiences that is going to heaven and coming back. Here, if you're taking notes, write it down. Here's the difference. Please notice the centrality of the glory and majesty of God in this vision. It's incredible. Everything else just kind of fades to the periphery. There is the centrality of the glory and majesty of God. Whatever, listen to me, whatever your vision of heaven is, if God is not at the center of it, I hope to change that today. In fact, these two chapters divide nicely into these couple of points, the glory of God in creation, chapter 4, and the glory of the Lamb in redemption in chapter 5. So as we make our way through these chapters, God is central, not a rainbow pony, and He is supreme. Yes, there are other figures that we will meet, like four living creatures, 24 elders, myriads of angels, every created thing in heaven on earth. It just becomes this crescendo. But they will all, listen, they will all be doing the same thing, worshiping God and making much of Him. All that by way of introduction. Let's read Revelation chapter 4. We're going to read the whole chapter. We're not going to get... We're going to do three verses this morning. Listen, I mean, John and Heather Lachelle came in this morning and they said that she told me they were talking at breakfast about how many verses I would get through today. Do you not have anything more important to talk about at breakfast? (laughs) It's not the whole chapter. After these things I looked, and behold, a door standing open in heaven. And the first verse which I had heard, like the sound of a trumpet speaking with me, said, Come up here, and I will show you what must take place after these things. Immediately I was in the Spirit. Behold, a throne was standing in heaven, and one sitting on the throne. And he was sitting was 
like a jasper stone and a sardius in appearance. And there was a rainbow around the throne like an emerald in appearance. Around the throne were 24 thrones. And upon the thrones I saw 24 elders sitting clothed in white garments and golden crowns on their heads. And out from the throne came flashes of lightning and sounds and peals of thunder. And there were seven lamps of fire burning before the throne, which are the seven spirits of God. And before the throne, there was something like a sea of glass, like crystal. And in the center and around the throne, four living creatures full of eyes in front and behind. This gets really weird. The first creature was like a lion and the second a creature like a calf. And the third uh, creature had a face like that of a man. And the fourth creature was like that, like a flying eagle. I'll tell you what all that means as soon as I study it this week. And, and the four living creatures, each, each one of them having six wings are full of eyes around and within. And day and night, they do not cease to say, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God, the Almighty who was and who is and who is to come. And when the living creatures give glory and honor and thanks to him who sits on the throne, to him who lives forever and ever, the 24 elders will fall down before him who sits on the throne and will worship him who lives forever and ever and will cast their crowns before the throne saying, worthy are you, O Lord our God to receive glory and honor and power for you created all things and because of your will they existed and were created. Whatever your vision of heaven, if it is not that, it's not right. Why is this, chapter four and chapter five, why are they here? Because believers are suffering on earth for their allegiance and commitment to Jesus Christ, and say this last service, not even in my notes, which might be why we have a distorted view of heaven, because we're living such easy, lax lives now, we think that's what it's going to be there, and we think about things like streets of gold and watercolored ponies, rather than God. They're being suffering for their allegiance. Some are being tempted to bow to Caesar, to bow to emperor worship. And so this book makes clear that Caesar and other so-called gods are not gods. They do not sit on the throne of heaven. God alone is God. He is creator and he is redeemer. Further, in their tribulation, their persecution, God is about to unleash torrid wrath on the earth against those who have rejected him, rejected his son, rejected his gospel, and rejected his people. His people will be protected either from or through the tribulation, pre or post, whatever you want. But those who have opposed them, led by the beast, the false prophet, and the dragon, by Satan and his evil world system, will ultimately, listen, they will ultimately be judged because God's judgment is eminent, it is sure, and it is frankly vehement. Read the book. Even this first view of heaven that we just read shows our glorious God sitting on a throne with all of heaven worshiping him as peals of lightning and thunder explode from his throne explode from his throne. We will see that same picture of lightning and, and thunder at significant points of judgment when he pull, pours out the bulls and the trumpets, peals of lightning and thunder. And so, you may be here this morning and you're asking, why, why is this or that happening to me? I mean, why? Since I gave my life in faith to Jesus Christ, things have not gotten better. They've gotten worse. 
I try to live for Christ. Why does it cost me so much? I'm ridiculed. I'm oppressed. Things aren't going right. And now, Scott, you're telling me that it's going to get worse. And I want to say to you that God is sitting on his throne, and none of this has taken him by surprise. Rebellion against him and his right to rule, attacking his relationship with his people, began way back in the garden. And we have lived in a fallen world where Satan is opposed to God's people ever since. But I want you to understand, my brothers and sisters, it will not end this way. God will rightly judge. His people will be revealed and rewarded, and we will be vindicated. Here's the outline of this glorious chapter, setting of the second vision, the characters. This doesn't seem like the right word. As I was reading that in the first services, I thought, characters? I said that about God? persons maybe of the second vision and then the proclamation of the second vision we have a lot going on this morning some more after so we'll simply cover the setting in the first person of the vision today starting with that first point again this chapter starts a new major unit of the book after these things i looked and behold a door standing open in heaven which symbolizes don't miss this symbolizes Unlocked access between heaven and earth. The veil of the temple was rent in two. It's not as if, I don't know what you're going through. It's not as if God is distant and inattentive and unaware and distracted and uninterested. I would ask if you've ever asked the question, where are you, God? I want to say the answer is this, the door is open. God is close at hand and sees all that is happening in his church and he sees all that is happening with you. He knows. And it's according to his plan. Interesting, when God's people of the Old Testament were taken into exile, uh, we read in Ezekiel, a prophet of exile, the heavens were opened and I saw visions of God. Even while in a distant land, God was present, he was aware, and he was still on his throne. John then hears the voice he had heard at the first, like a sound of a trumpet. goes back to chapter 1. I was in the Spirit on the Lord's day, and I heard behind me a loud voice like the sound of a trumpet. sound of a trumpet speaks of power authority, announcing something important. In chapter 1, John then turned to see the one speaking and received his first, first vision of the glorified Christ. So we then rightly assume that the voice speaking to him at the beginning of the second vision in chapter 4 is none other than Jesus Christ. Sound of a trumpet. Jesus said to John, come up here, and I will show you what must take place after these things. The door is open, John. Come and Look, and I will show you. He said that in chapter 1. He says it here in chapter 4. He's going to say it again at the end of the book. And again, this likely refers what will take place, likely refers back to chapter 1, verse 19, where Jesus is right. The things which you have seen in the vision of Christ and the things which are, perhaps referring to the condition of the churches, and the things which will take place after these things. Jesus is about to reveal to John, I think, the future events which will happen at the eschaton, that is, the end of time as we, as we know it. Chapter 6 to 19 are yet to happen, although they've been happening in little ways leading to that final period. 
Notice these things, these are things which must. <laughs> it's a great word. Which must take place after these things. This, is, this speaks of divine necessity. God has determined how these things will unfold, and so they will, just as he has ordained to include in your very life. I've said it this way before. There is not a maverick molecule in the universe. God knows what he's doing. He knows what he's doing with your life. These things must take place. So John was, says he was immediately in the spirit. We saw that in chapter 1. Likely means that he was either in a spirit-empowered trance and in a suitable state for prophecy or vision, or he was specially filled with and controlled by the spirit. Take your pick. Which brings us to the description of that first person. Again, we're only going to look at this first one this morning. Central figure of the vision, the central figure of the Bible. If your vision, if your view, if your dreams of heaven don't have God front and center, center, fix it. Verse 2, immediately I was in the spirit and behold, a throne was standing in heaven and one sitting on the throne. John is transported in the vision to, to or through the open door and two central features appear right away. The locus, location of ruling authority, which is a throne, and the one sitting on it who wields that authority. First thing he sees, everything else on the periphery. He'll notice the other things shortly, but the first thing, the most important thing, central to any vision of heaven needs to be a throne and one sitting on it. John, notice, does not immediately identify this one. He allows us, I heard this phrase on Friday night with some friends, he allows us to sit in the mystery for a moment. <laughs> Building to verse 8, one commentator writes, in a masterful way, John gently enfolds for the reader this overwhelming, luminous vision as we discover in the verses that, that follow of God Almighty in his glorious throne room surrounded by heavenly retinue. Here John presents, quoting that same author, with restrained simplicity, a throne standing in heaven, representing the place from which the entire universe is ruled, in which the entire universe is ruled. You see, the throne symbolizes kingship and majesty, dominion, authority, and power. Don't miss it. It speaks of his absolute sovereignty. Again, not a maverick molecule. Absolute and total sovereignty. Psalm 103 says, The Lord has established his throne in the heavens, and his sovereignty rules over all. If there is a molecule that's out there doing its own thing without God's sovereignty over it, then God is no longer sovereign. If there is an event in your life over which God is not sovereign, then he is no longer sovereign. John pulls back the curtain so we can see who is truly in charge. The, the, the churches of Asia Minor were wondering, who's in charge here? John answers. We find God sitting on his throne through the rest of the book. Through the rest, we're going to keep coming back. He's sitting on the throne. He's sitting on the throne. It's going to get really bad. He's sitting on the throne, even when it seems like evil is unchecked. Nope. 
The word throne is used over 40 times in this book, 13 times in this chapter alone. Three of the four times that the word throne is used in the New Testament, it is found in this book. Why? Because suffering, persecuted believers needed to be reminded God is on his throne. While not named, John gives a description of this one seated on the throne in verse 3. He who was sitting was like. Notice he uses that word over and over, like. We're not supposed to see actual gemstones, but he's trying to describe, listen to this, I love this. He's trying to describe the magnificence of God for people like you and me. And this is the best he can do. God in his beauty and splendor actually defy description. His glory is beyond human capacities and human comprehension. Mind blown. Notice John avoids any anthropomorphic language because God is completely other. He is one who is like a jasper stone in a sardius or carnelian in, in appearance. We're not sure exactly what John means by those two stones. Later in chapter one, 21, he will speak of the brilliance of the city, the holy city Jerusalem, having, and he says this, having the glory of God. And we read, her brilliance, I love that, her brilliance was like a very costly stone as a stone of crystal clear jasper. That's an interesting phrase. You see, jasper was thought to be yellow or amber, maybe even some hues of green or, or, or blue. But here John says, the glory of, like the glory of God, this jasper, the walls of the city were crystal clear, causing many to suggest, I think perhaps rightly, most suggest this, that he's talking about a diamond in its multifaceted beauty. Second stone was a sardius, again, a carnelian, a fiery ruby red stone mined near Sardis, hence Sardius. These two stones appear in a couple of other important places. First, in the description of the city I just mentioned, the walls are said to be made of jasper and gold, like clear glass. Then we're told about the foundation stones, the first being jasper, the sixth being Sardius. Second, the, pre, the high priest ephod, way back in, in the book of Exodus, had 12 stones on its chest with the names of the 12 tribes engraved there, uh, thereon. The first was the ruby, like the sardius, and the last was the jasper. I'm not sure that we're supposed to get much from that other than the beginning and the end. God had all of his chosen people in, on the chest of the high priest, just like Jesus bears us now. These are costly, precious stones, brilliant, resplendent in appearance. As I suggested earlier, Isaiah and Ezekiel give descriptions of God. I, Isaiah simply get, says this. That's it. It's all he says. I saw the Lord sitting on a throne, lofty and exalted, with the train of his robe filling the temple. There you go. We are supposed to have a view of majesty and glory. We're supposed to be overwhelmed by this sentence. After all, Paul tells us in 1 Timothy chapter 6 that God dwells in unapproachable light. Ezekiel, I mentioned earlier, he, he, in chapter 1, he says a little bit more, look at it now, above the expanse that was over their heads, that's the four living creatures, we'll talk about that next week, there was something resembling a, resembling a light, you see these words, a throne, uh, like lapis uh, lazuli, I don't know what that is, but someone came up to me after the first service and said, I've got some of that. It's mined in Afghanistan. He's going to bring me some. It's great. I'll show you. In appearance, and on that which resembled a throne, high up was a figure with the appearance of a man. The appearance of a man. Then I noticed from the appearance of his loins and up were something like glowing metal that looked like fire all around 
uh, all around within it and from the appearance of his loins and downward I saw something like fire and there was a radiance, glory about him. What is your view of heaven? It needs to be a glorious God sitting on his throne. As the appearance of the rainbow in the clouds on a rainy day, so was the appearance of the surrounding radiance. Some, such was the appearance of the likeness of the glory of the Lord. And when I saw it, I fell on my face and heard a voice speaking. Because when you come face to face with the glory of God, what else can you do? You see the centrality and glory of God in these visions of heaven. Ezekiel, too, like John and Isaiah, avoid saying that they saw God, but rather an appearance and what, look, and what it looked like. Because we remember the doxology in 1 Timothy 1. Now to the king, eternal, immortal, invisible. He is invisible. We can only describe what his glory displays, what his appearance is like. Ezekiel says, from the middle, upward, glowing metal, fire all around, middle, downward, fire and radiance. Unbelievable. What's your picture of heaven? Ezekiel, too, described his appearance with a rainbow. John describes the rainbow around the throne as emerald, in appearance, perhaps it means the emerald green color was predominant, speaking of God being the author of life. This is a guess. Some suggest that. It, it is interesting. God gave the rainbow in the clouds as a sign of the covenant to Noah that he would never again judge the earth by a flood. <laughs> but now he is going to judge the earth. We're going to see that in the rest of the book. But the rainbow was to be a perpetual reminder of God's goodness, of God's covenant, of God's commitment, his faithfulness to his promises. It's interesting to me today the way that the rainbow has been co-opted to celebrate the opposite, sexual immorality that God will ultimately judge, meaning Jezebel is alive and well. So when you're driving and you see the little rainbow flag on the back or you're, you, of a car or you see it waving from a, you know, a, a, a government building or in front of a so-called church, I want to remind you of what the rainbow truly represents, even if the flag waver does not see it. God is faithful to his promises. He is surrounded in an unapproachable light. His judgment is coming and he is good, and he loves you. We'll get to the rest of chapter 4, the other person's worship of God next week. But as we close, I want you to think about something with me. I am afraid that we make too much of the secondary and third or tertiary things of heaven. By secondary things, I mean angels and cherubim and seraphim and, and even people. By tertiary or third things, I mean crystal seas and streets of gold and gates of pearl and walls of precious stones and many dwelling places and even the tree of life that bears its fruit year-round, new heaven, new earth. That's all important because they are narrated, uh, revealed to us in Scripture to include in this book. We're going to meet some other characters, Lord willing, next week, but they, they don't take center stage. 
Central to heaven is the throne and the one who sits on it. And I want to say to you, my brothers and sisters, we will join the throng of heaven singing, worthy are you, our Lord and our God, to receive glory and honor and power. Amen. Let's stand for prayer. Father, I just invited us to stand for prayer, and yet perhaps the response should be that of kneeling or like Ezekiel falling prostrate in our faces before you. We've seen a picture of heaven, a true picture that is a little different than the ones, the juvenile ones that we hear about and even celebrate and read and try and be encouraged by, but you call us to be overwhelmed by your sovereignty and your majesty your glory, that you sit on the throne, that you are in charge. So, Father, my prayer for us as a church today that we would rightly honor you, that we would exalt you, that you would be big in our minds and in our hearts, not that, not that we make you big. You are big. You're enormous. You're infinite. Sit on your throne. Heaven, the psalmist says, uh, sit on your throne in heaven, and earth is your footstool. You are glorious. We celebrate you. We magnify you. We exalt you today. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen.